This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab Podcast. The podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several and something they have in common. Today I will be talking about baby farming. Once again, this is not about Cabbage Patch Babies. And as I've said before, it's a little bit closer to Motel Hell, if you're familiar with that concept. I will explain what baby farming is in just a moment. First, I would like to thank everybody for tuning in and subscribing. And if you haven't subscribed, why don't you go do that? I'd like to thank Igor for all of her assistance. She helped me out with research in this episode. And I hope you enjoyed our last episode where we discussed Hammer Movies and the Razzies. She does have another episode coming up next Monday, so we look forward to that. Make sure to keep track of the Murder Lab Facebook and Instagram pages, as well as the website, MurderLabMedia.com, for more information and such. I do have an exciting announcement. I'm starting a podcast group where people who have podcasts can get together and we can just hang out and we can talk shop and get to know each other and the other podcasts that are in the area. So if you are interested in participating, you can come to Eastwood Metro Park on Saturday, May 22nd. I will have more details as we get closer to that date. If you have a podcast or know someone who has a podcast, let them know. It'll be real casual. Like I said, it's just basically a chance to get together and find out about each other's podcasts and maybe even talk some issues we face and ask each other questions and whatever. We can, dis- we can decide how we want to proceed as we meet. I'm calling it Podcast in the Park. If you go to the Murder Lab Facebook page, you can find it. It's linked there. Or you can go to Podcast in the Park and find the page. So that's an exciting thing. I'm also going to start planning events for Murder Lab to to go out and venture amongst the people and sell merch and just hang out, whatever you want to do. So keep keep tuned for that. Things will start to take off here soon as things begin to open up a little bit more. All right, let's just uh, get on in to the baby farming. I'm probably going to slip and say baby making because for some reason when I was talking about it this weekend with Igor, I kept saying baby making. (laughs) And and yeah, it required babies to be made to become a baby farmer, but it's still a, a bit of a different concept. My main source for this episode is Annie Cousins, C O S S I N S, The Baby Farmers. A Chilling Tale of Missing Babies, Shameful Secrets, and Murder in 19th Century Australia. Now this book is specifically about one couple that were baby farmers and delves into their case deeply, but it does have a lot of good information about baby farming in general, so I'm going to explain it to you the way they explained it to me in the book. I shall read a few paragraphs to give you an idea of what baby farming is all about. To most people, the term baby farming is unknown, while to others it is a quaint term from a simpler time. During the 1800s, it evoked great concern among the medical profession, politicians, and social reformers. But what was baby farming? One of the best-kept secrets of the 19th century was the trade in the life and death of children. Bought and sold like cats and dogs, an illegitimate child was a commonly available commodity with no oversight by government authorities on Australia until the 1890s when the Infant Life Protection Act was enacted in Victoria in 1890, followed by the Children's Protection Act in New South Wales in 1892. For thousands of unmarried mothers... The baby trade was a necessary evil since illegitimacy was a moral transgression condemned by the church and the law. An unmarried pregnant woman was trapped by the twin gatekeepers of financial ruin on one side and moral ruination on the other. The thin space in between was occupied by the baby farmer holding out a helping hand. Perhaps it is no surprise that illegitimate children had much higher mortality rate than those born within marriage. Baby farmers like John and Sarah played a crucial role in contributing to this morality wa- mortality rate. Low rates of marriage, no state-regulated adoption scheme, and lack of effective and affordable abortion all meant that unmarried pregnant women had two options, infanticide or baby farming. The underground trade in babies often began with a midwife who delivered an illegitimate baby in her home. She would place an advertisement in a local newspaper, seeking a kindly lady to look after the infant, using a discreet address such as the newspaper office for replies. Other times, a young mother would pay for her child to be nursed by her midwife for a few weeks or months before being forced to place an advertisement herself. For the women who gave up their babies to the Macons, which is this couple in this book, some went to great lengths to hide the pregnancy, the baby, and their identities. 
So basically the ads appeared in the classified advertising section where all manner of items, dogs, cats, horses, secondhand clothing, and old coppers were advertised for sale. The language of the ads was always in code, reflecting the expectations of the mother and the baby farmer. If a one-off payment, called a premium, was offered or the word adopt was used, this meant the child was to be sold, although some unmarried mothers hoped the occasional visit would be part of the adoption plan. Even after legislation was passed in the colonies to regulate the activities of baby farmers, adoptions were rarely reported to the authorities, although occasionally a written agreement was signed by the mother and the baby farmer. Midwives involved in the baby trade, if not the mother herself, would have known that the premium was actually a fee for disposing of the child. The premium was usually in the range of two to five pounds, more if the unmarried mother was well-to-do. Anonymity and discretion were usually understood. If a weekly payment was offered or the words no premium were used, this indicated the mother's hope that the arrangement was temporary and she would have ongoing contact, perhaps being able to reclaim her child if her situation changed. A weekly payment also meant her child would live longer and be better looked after since weekly visits meant the baby farmer had to keep up appearances. Most baby farmers took in more children than they could possibly afford to care for, either in time or money. Many kept a mixture of children, those they outright adopted for a fee and those they kept for a weekly payment. When the premium ran out or weekly payments dropped off, some baby farmers sold adopted children onto other baby farmers for a lower sum, pocketing the difference. This made way for another batch of babies and a new injection of money and left someone else to deal with the problem of disposal. Others subjected their premium children to weeks of neglect and starvation. Hidden in the slums of Sydney, baby farmers effectively operated as kennels for babies to be put down. Things changed with the enactment of the Children's Protection Act in New South Wales in 1892 after a parliamentary committee inquiry decided that legislation was needed to protect the colony's children from rapacious baby farmers. During the inquiry, sensational evidence was presented by the president of the New South Wales Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. He revealed that the society had tested the extent of baby farming in Sydney by placing a false advertisement in the evening news asking for a kind mother to adopt a child for life. The society received 80 replies, with most baby farmers requesting lump sums from £3 to £30, although one asked for £50. 75 replies promised the child would never be heard of again. There was a legislative, a member of the Legislative Assembly that thought that the government was a property authority to deal with unwanted babies. Instead of legislation, he argued a properly funded foundling hospital should be established since registration of baby farmers would not prevent people taking children for the sole purpose of making money. They did come up with the Children's Protection Act in 1892. It was to regulate people who took children into their care. It set up a compulsory registration scheme, though it did not make baby farming illegal. All persons who took a child under the age of three years to adopt or nurse for payment could only do so with a written order of a justice of the peace. This, in turn, required inspectors to assess houses as being suitable, and the owner had to show she was of good character and had the means to maintain the children. Inspections could take place at any time, while refusal of an inspection was a criminal offense. It also limited how much could be paid to a baby farmer in order to stop the payment of one-off premiums. Any money paid had to be in the form of periodical installments and could not exceed the sum of 20 shillings. Baby farmers were also required to register a child within seven days of receiving it at their local births, deaths, and marriage, marriages register. They were not allowed to move house or relinquish the care of a child without notifying the district registrar. It was not widely enforced. Between March and October of 1892, only 71 houses and 74 infants had been registered. It's important to note, I'm specifically talking about, in this book, in Australia. So I, it, it's not exactly going to be quite the same in some of the un other countries that this took place, because this took place also in New Zealand, England, America. This took place in a bunch of different countries, which is, is interesting that it was, it was kind of, it was in effect of that time period. You'll see this is all happening in the same, same time period. But I think you can use it as a microcosm of the bigger picture. This explanation from Australia, it still has implications in other countries. It still it tells you the common themes and reasons, gives you a background on any place that had this problem. It gives you an idea of why this problem existed. There was an issue of no one was monitoring it. They make a reference that if someone couldn't move away without telling people, that was another problem is that they would run away. So it makes sense that if you want to take someone's baby, and not really take care of it and just take their money, you'd be running away a lot because mothers, especially if they wanted to keep finding, looking at their babies, that would be a problem. Another thing is that if they were tight on money, then they may run away from their renters, from their obligations as renters. Another issue that 
there were a lot of babies and there weren't many means to take care of them. It was also common for regular parents that could, could raise their children properly to give their babies elixirs or patent medicines that had opium in them. Quoting again from this baby farmer's book, it was common in the 1800s for mothers, midwives, and baby farmers to drug children with patent medicines or elixirs containing opium, such as Godfrey's cordial. In fact, new mothers were advised by an article in the Sydney Morning Herald to ensure they were never without a flask of Godfrey's cordial in the nursery. The lack of laws regulating drug use and the relaxed attitudes towards drugs in the 1800s meant that people treated their ailments with patent medicines, which were available from chemists or grocer's shelves, without prescription, if and when the customer wanted them. These elixirs were also widely used because they were cheap, about the price of a pint of beer. The cordial was advertised as a cure for a wide range of children's symptoms, from fretfulness to colic to diarrhea. It was frequently used to sedate temperamental babies, and many died from opium overdoses either by mistake or as a result of continuous use by nurses to keep infants in a deep state of sleep and thus of no bother. Although Godfrey's cordial was definitely the baby farmer's friend, baby farmers were in common company since its liberal use by mothers and midwives meant that it was one of the major causes of infant deaths in the 1800s. What would happen too is that if you gave this baby this, this uh, opium stuff, they would be drugged and they wouldn't cry for food because they'd just be sleepy and sleeping. So they could also die of starvation because they're not crying for food so nobody's feeding them. And again, this is something we'll, we'll see in, in different countries. Maybe not that exact Godfrey's in every country, but that is a um, prevalent thing around the place. I have to admit, it feels really, really weird to keep saying the phrase baby farm and baby farming. It seems ridiculous that we should ever have to put those words together, but here we are. I'm going to go through, we've got Margaret Waters, John and Sarah Macon. The book, The Baby Farmers, that I'm referring to is about John and Sarah Macon. Wilhelmina or Minnie Dean, Amelia Dyer, Amelia Sack and Annie Walters, and then Hans Oftedal. So I'm going to go through each one of those, and I'm not going to get super deep into any of them except for maybe the Macons. First we have Margaret Waters, who was the first convicted baby farmer in England. Her number of victims ranged from 1 to over 19. The date of the murders were around 1866 to 1870, or some say that she started in 1864 when her husband died. Her husband died, and she was living in London, and this put her in a tight spot, so she began to do the baby farming. She would tell pregnant women that she could find good homes for their kids, would help them give birth, and then take the children. She would place advertisements in local newspapers headed adoption, claiming that a married couple in a good position were wishing to adopt a baby as they were unable to have a child of their own. She wound up putting about 27 advertisements out. She would adopt them for the sum of 10 pounds, and then what she would supposedly do is take the babies and then go to that same newspaper and look at the advertisers who wanted to adopt babies and then she would sell the baby to them and then she'd pocket the difference. So if she charged 10 pounds to buy a baby and they charged five pounds to buy a baby then she made five pounds out of it. Basically something like that. She wouldn't keep the baby she would move the baby forward and make a little bit of money on the side. She did keep some of the babies though and Sergeant Richard Ralph of the Metropolitan Police was the first person to specialize in investigating baby farming murders. He examined the cases of 18 infant deaths in that area, which led to the arrests of Margaret Waters. The 16-year-old daughter of the Cohen family had become pregnant and her father answered one of the advertisements. He received a letter from M. Willis and arranged a meeting with him and he later identified her as Margaret Waters. So here's another thing. Baby farmers would often use aliases. So that way they could operate longer and have less people be able to track them and, and not catch them. It's not unusual that they would have a different name. He paid her two pounds to take their baby John, who had been born in 1870. The sergeant saw another advertisement for adoption in the same local paper, placed by a Mrs. Oliver. He interviewed Mrs. Oliver, who turned out to be 28-year-old Sarah Ellis, Mary's sister. He followed her, and the next morning he went with Mr. Cohen to the house. They found the baby John, along with five other infants, all in, quote, pitiable condition. John should have weighed about 12 pounds by this point, but he only weighed six. On the table, they found a bottle of laudanum. Laudanum is also one of these um, elixirs that has opium in it. All of the infants were removed to the workhouse, but they died as a result of malnutrition and laudanum ingestion. At this point, Margaret Waters, a 35-year-old widow, 
was charged with five counts of willful murder of children, as well as neglect and conspiracy. She reportedly took the lives of more than 40 infants. I was able to find an article from The Guardian from October 12, 1870, that was titled, Margaret Waters, Child Care Provider Who Murdered Five Babies, 1870. Margaret Waters, the baby farmer, was executed yesterday morning at 9 o'clock within the walls of Horsemonger Lane Prison. Reporters say the prisoner appears to have conducted herself remarkably well since her conviction. On Monday night, she requested to be allowed to write a statement of her case, which she desired to be published after her death. She said she pleaded guilty to obtaining money by false pretenses and admitted that she had laid down the dead bodies of five infants, but she declared that they all died of convulsions or diarrhea. She said she perfectly understood why this case had been got up, and she considered the parents of illegitimate children who wanted to get rid of them by any means were more to blame than a person like herself. If there were no parents of this class, there would be no baby farmers. I don't know why I read that like it was a 1920s news report, but, you know, there we go. She knew that she had killed five babies, but actually she said it was it was negligent. She accidentally killed them, and she figures that she's not as bad as the parents who gave her the babies, because... If they weren't babies that were being given away, then she couldn't have them to take. She said that her husband had left her with 300 pounds, and she had done her best to earn an honest living, but then she gradually sunk into a state of chronic debt. She goes on about how she drifted along, going from bad to worse. She didn't intend to hurt the children, and she did go to a money lender, which just got her further and further into, through that vicious cycle of debt and always owing money and, you know, not keeping up. She said that she had no idea of injuring the children, though she did some things she was very sorry for owing to the difficulties of her position. When she first began, she would actually call a doctor when they were sick. And when they died, they were buried properly and she had the undertaker's receipts. But she did say that at one point when she started to, when things started to get bad, she, there were about four children that one at a time she would take the kid, the baby to the streets. And when she saw a little boy or girl playing, she'd hand the baby to the kid and say, I'm, I'm tired, hold my baby, here's some money, go get yourself some sweets. And then when the boy walked away with the baby and the, and the money, she ran away. And she believes the babies were generally taken to the workhouse. Which, it's still better than them dying, but that's still, like, that's a lot of pressure to put on a ba on a little boy or girls. They hand them a baby and then disappear. I guess a workhouse, I mean, the workhouses, I'm sure, were probably just terrible. But, I mean, again, it's better than dying. Her point, was, though, was at, at, that at the beginning she was trying to do right by the kids, or at least trying not to be despicable, as she wound up being. She was known as the... Brixton baby farmer because she was in the Brixton area of London. Now we will get on to John and Sarah Macon, which is by far the one that I learned the most about since obviously I read a book about it. They were in Australia. They had about 12 or more victims in the 1890s. She had been married before. I couldn't really figure out what happened to that marriage, but at any rate, she married John, who worked in a brewery. He suffered from an accident, and then they decided to make a meager living by taking care of illegitimate baby. Something interesting that the book brought out is that she actually got syphilis at some point, and some of her own children died of it. So some of them didn't live very long at all because they were born with, um, it caused all kinds of problems like convulsions and rashes and, and shit like that. They would eventually just die. So they had like, I think they had like 10 kids and four of them died or so. So that's another thing, is that syphilis was rampant, and they didn't really have great health care. So that's another reason why infant mortality rates were really high. So that's another thing that I should have pointed out earlier, is one of the other problems is you've got lots of babies, and then, like, no health care, hardly. So baby fatalities are really high. And people who, just regular, regular non-baby farming people, their kid might die, and they'd be afraid to come forward about it, because... They didn't, the funerals were expensive, so they didn't have the money to properly bury the baby, so they would just dump babies. So it wasn't uncommon to find dead babies just scattered around the street. It, maybe it wasn't quite as out in the open like that, but they, it's not unusual to find just dead babies that had been dumped. It was, that's another reason it made it hard to find baby farmers, because just everybody was dumping their babies. Apparently the M.O., was John would answer an advertisement, negotiate payment of three to five pounds, sign the papers exonerating the father from further responsibility. And another note here is that the mortality rates for babies separated from her mothers was so high that public, that public institutions were reluctant to admit them. 
that's another reason why baby farming became a popular thing is because they were the only course of action for some of these people. And the family moved frequently, sometimes owing rent. What got them caught? In October 1892, they had moved, and the couple that owned the property that they had been renting had noticed a smell and an issue with the plumbing. So they called out plumbers, and while the plumbers were digging in the backyard to work on the drain, they found the bodies of two babies. The cops came, and they eventually found seven total babies in that backyard. The police learned that the house was occupied by John and Sarah Macon, as well as their four daughters, who ranged in age from 11 to 17. At this point, John was 50 and Sarah was 47. The family swore there had only been one infant in their care while they lived there, and that it had been returned to its parents. The family was arrested. The kids were pretty much let go. There were, like, two girls that stood trial, but I don't believe any of them were officially punished. There's this one specific sergeant named James Joyce who really, really wanted to come up with a conviction and find evidence that they had been doing this and find proof that there was baby murder going on. And, you know, like I said, they moved around a lot. So he goes to, he finds out one of their previous addresses. They dig around the yard. They find four more baby bodies. So that means at that point there are 11. They go to another property and they find one. So there's 12. They go to another property and find two more. So there are 13 total. They did find the bones of what they thought were two kids together, but it turns out there was sheep bones. So they surmise that maybe they threw the baby out with the leftover dinner. Looks like they had been farming since at least 1889. The interesting thing is that the book, The Baby Farmers, is really interesting because it sets off right at the beginning saying they were actually only convicted of one baby murder. And the argument for the book is that they might have killed a child, but they were convicted for the wrong child. Like, they, they had, the child had been misidentified. So they were convicted for one child when it was probably a different child. And it goes through and it talks about how the trial was kind of bullshit. This is where it gets... It kind of messes with your mind. When they found the babies, they were all decomposed. And so it was hard to determine what happened to them. There weren't any witnesses that saw anybody kill the babies. So there's no witnesses. There's no definite proof. They don't have DNA. They don't have, you know, all of the uh, technology that we have today to try to figure things out. All they have is this cup, this family that was going from house to house they have people that said, yes, I sold them my baby. They do have witnesses of them being seen with babies. There are 12 corpses, but they have no proof of murder. And we also know that it's not uncommon for a parent to overdose their baby and the baby to die. Or it could die of syphilis or one of the other diseases that were around. They held inquests on at least four, four of the victims. And the jury came back saying, we can't prove that they killed them. Then there was also, you had, there was a fellow prisoner that said that John told him that no doctor would be able to find that they had poisoned them and that they, they'll have me for perjury and illegal burying. He mentioned something about there was an eighth child they didn't find. Then one or two of their daughters actually testified with some incriminating evidence. But there was, again, there was no proof that no one saw them killing a baby. During the course of the trial and such... They did find out that because they had signed a contract with one of the women, the coroner said that they had a duty to protect the life imposed by the contract according to the Coroner's Act. Failure to do so amounted to either murder or manslaughter. Under such a contract, any person taking custody of someone who is helpless and who is not provided with food or is provided with insufficient amounts of food was guilty of murder. So that's another challenge is, was it negligence, which would be manslaughter, or is it just straight-out murder? Again, this is something that they had to try to do with the lack of very much evidence. Then there was the issue of, so we know that we found 12 bodies, but we can't prove murder. So when we're talking about the death of this specific baby that we're having a trial over, should we tell the jury there were, there were 11 other bodies? Or is that unduly influencing them? Because they can't prove that any of those 11 were murdered. So therefore, would it be biasing the jury against them to say it? They wound up allowing it to be brought into court. The other problem is that at this specific trial, they had two goals. One was to positively identify the baby as this specific baby, I think Horace, 
or failing to do that, if you couldn't do that, you still had to decide, was the baby murdered? So they were supposed to figure out the identity of the baby or if the baby was murdered. So it got so muddled in the court case that they basically said that they couldn't identify the baby, but then they said that the baby horse was murdered. So they kind of, it was, it's this big confusing thing. The book is really interesting because it breaks down how if this trial happened today, what things would not have been admissible and how things would have been handled. And it in the book, it does show that basically the judge kept saying, like, shut the fuck up to the defense. So he didn't really, he had already made up his mind. And he basically scalds them about all the 12 murders, even though they were technically only on trial for one. He technically should not have been able to mention the other things. But since they allowed it into trial, I guess he felt like then he would mention it. I think it's important to say that it sounds like I'm saying it's okay that they had 12 babies in their care and that all those poor things, they were railroaded during the trial. But the fact of the matter is, because John got killed, he got hanged, he got executed. Sarah got sentenced to service of hard labor. They They did need punished. But if you cannot prove someone killed someone or several someones, then it's kind of difficult to say then it's okay to kill the people they did do they did do wrong i mean it's like in the book they point out whether they killed the babies or not there were babies dying in their care so there was either a problem of neglect and maybe there were were some with murders but at the very least they should be punished for unlawful barriers failure to register at least 13 deaths and Again, it's that the problem that they had babies dying in their care. And the interesting thing is, if you will note, they had at least four kids when this trial happened. We know that they had more that that did die, but they had four that lived to be like teenagers. So they knew how to take care of kids. They could do it, but obviously there was an issue where they couldn't take care of the kids that they were actually bringing in. So... There definitely was a problem. They definitely needed punished. They definitely should not have had children in their care. The argument is just that maybe they didn't have a fair trial and maybe they were railroaded. Although John seems to feel like that he he was mad that he was being punished for the wrong baby. It was like he wasn't really mad that he was felt he was being punished unjustly, that he never had killed anyone. It was that he was just irritated that it was for the wrong one. Like, if you're going to charge me, at least charge me correctly. Sarah basically always denied it she actually she wound up serving 19 years of hard labor but then she was really bad in health and mentally she since she had the syphilis there's also an argument that her syphilis was fucking with her so she may have become unreliable and she had fits and things and that might have been because of syphilis and as syphilis gets further and further into its uh, stages then it can really fuck with you. So eventually her daughter's petitioned to have her out of the prison and she was able to leave and die at home. I would recommend reading The Baby Farmers by Annie Cousins, C-O-S-S-I-N-S. They, they also, she also does go into the background of all of their families and who their families come from and all that. And there's lots of details about the babies in the case and how they would switch the baby's clothing. So when the they would find a baby... And they'd think, oh, well, a mom would identify, well, I made that dress for that baby. But they were known to switch the clothings of the baby. So just because the baby was wearing that dress doesn't mean that that was her baby. They could have changed the outfits. And then another thing is that, as I said, one of the babies that should have been, with the other case, one of the babies that should have been 12 pounds was only 6 pounds. So if you have babies that are being starved, they're smaller. So if you're trying to measure the corpse of a baby that has been decomposing. Problem is trying to measure a baby is that I believe it was the thigh bone that they would measure that that was the best way at that point to measure a baby's bones to determine how old it should be at that size. But you, they could literally be like half the weight and they could be smaller. So just because the thigh is a certain a certain inches doesn't mean that that baby's actually that age. It could be that that's an older baby that's just been starving. So that's also difficult is he had things like this could be baby could be two to 12 weeks old. It sounds crazy that there'd be such a a variance, but that's exactly the problem is they didn't have the DNA and the technology to be able to actually pinpoint the dates of some of these babies' deaths. Wilhelmina Dean, also known as Minnie, has about 3 to 10 victims and was active between 1889 and 1895. 
some comments from articles that we found. Her story exposed the stark realities of paid childcare and the lack of choice that many women face in this period. Dean offered unwanted small children a home for a fee, and some 27 of them passed through her life. Ten are known to have survived, six are thought to have died, three are unaccounted for despite efforts to find them, and the remaining eight, who knows? And there is also a note that, since people didn't have to keep records, it was hard to prove the babies would disappear. Minnie Dean was born in Scotland and was an immigrant to New Zealand in 1865. She married a laborer, and she started to teach local children, but they needed more income, so they started baby farming. Apparently, before they started the baby farming, her husband was an innkeeper during the gold rush, so they were doing pretty damn well, but then the gold rush kind of faded. Then he became a pig farmer. One source said he was a sheep farmer, so he tried legitimate farming with legitimate animals. And then they decided, well, let's do some humans. Let's try the babies. Her husband argued that they couldn't afford to house as many children as she was taking in, but she was not caring. They took in up to nine kids in her home in the Larches. They were all under the age of three years old. In 1889, a six-month-old died. 1891, a six-week-old died of inflammation of the heart valves and congestion of the lungs. The medical authorities noticed babies were dying. They ruled them due to natural causes, but they didn't like the squalid conditions. And they basically told her that she probably shouldn't be doing it. So then instead, she started using aliases. In one source, it said that they discovered she tried to take out policies on some of the children. I didn't see that in many other places, but that's possible. That that was another way that she was looking to make money. After that, she put an advertisement in the paper, took in a one-month-old baby. It disappeared after she was seen with it, but she denied ever seeing the baby. Then the baby's clothes were found at her place. She was arrested, they searched the flower garden, and they found two babies. So maybe it is a little bit more like the Cabbage Patch than I suspected. It's a reverse Cabbage Patch. One baby was a recently missing one, and then the third one was an older one, was closer to three years old. One had died from poisoning, and they found the drug in the house. Her husband was not allowed near the garden, so it seemed like it was all Minnie's doing. She was brought to the law a couple of times. In 1895, a railway guard noticed Minnie with a baby and a hat box, and then later he just saw Minnie Minnie with the hat box and no baby. And the hat hat box looked suspiciously heavy. They found nothing on the train or along the tracks. They searched her property. And that's when they found the bodies of the two babies and the skeleton of the older boy. I told that story a a little out of order. Sorry. As for the baby in the hat box, she said, When I got on the train, I laid the child down on the cushions. She was asleep. She had dosed the sickly infant with laudanum. But she misjudged the quantity. She looked over and realized the child was dead later on the journey. She panicked, and that night in the hotel room, she stuffed the body in the box, tied it up, and then went about as if nothing had happened. Her defense claimed that the death was an accident, but she was found guilty and hanged. So there were other high-profile cases overseas involving high volume and neglect in baby farming, which caused a massive public and police interest in the practice in New Zealand. All of this likely contributed to the outcome of Dean's trial and her place as the only woman in the country to be actually executed. She was the first and last woman hanged in New Zealand. She's become part of New Zealand lore. Parents would warn their children if they misbehaved, they would be sent to Minnie's farm. She had directly inspired the 1893 Infant Life Protection Act. Anyone who took in kids under two for more than three consecutive days with payment, had to be registered as a foster home and were inspected by the police. 1980s, a television series screened in New Zealand, began to spark queries about her guilt, or rather her innocence. Historian Lindley Hood, author of Minnie Dean, Her Life and Crimes, published a book 99 years after Dean's death. Research revealed desperation and optimism to be more realistic motives than bloodlust, coupled with the not atypical use of laudanum to calm the children in her care. Quote, Whether the real Minnie Dean deserves her terrible place in New Zealand's folklore is far from certain, writes Hood. In 2009, a distant Scottish relative paid for Dean to have a headstone on her arm-marked grave. She was known as the Southland Witch or the Winton Baby Farmer. Amelia Dyer was in England. 
1837 to 1896. She was hanged for one murder, but it is estimated she killed 200 to 400 babies. Born in 1837 to a shoemaker in a small village in Bristol, she had a tough childhood in which she was the main carer for her mentally ill mother. She later trained in nursing, but turned to baby farming after finding out about it from a co-worker when her husband died, leaving her with a little girl to support. The Poor Law Amendment Act of 1834 made it so fathers of illegitimate children were not obligated by law to support their children financially, leaving many women without options. That fucked a lot of shit up, and it's fucked up. To make the men not have to care for the children so that women had to bear, to bear the burden of the whole thing, it's a bunch of bullshit. So that's another thing that contributed. In 1869, she began advertising in local papers... Married couple with no family would adopt healthy child, nice country home, terms 10 pounds. Amelia began by starving and neglecting the babies with opium-based syrup to keep them quiet. Or it says that she may actually have strangled some of them. She did this for years before a physician got wise, and she was then she was incarcerated for six months for neglect. There's a note. Social conditions within Victorian England appeared to have enabled Dyer to get away with conducting her business for about 20, 30 years. With high infant mortality rates being a sad fact of Victorian life, early deaths often escaped the notice of authorities. When they had searched her house, they found piles of baby clothing and numerous receipts from advertisements in various newspapers across the country when she was finally tracked down. However, after she did some time, she went back to baby farming. She would not involve physicians this time and began disposing of the bodies herself. She also re relocated frequently and used aliases. She traveled from her homes in Bristol and Reading as far as Liverpool and Plymouth, charging between 1 to, one to 80 pounds. Most babies left in her care were murdered within days or some within hours. She was eventually apprehended when an infant's body recovered from the Thames was traced back to a Mrs. Thomas, one of Dyer's many aliases. There was a parcel weighed down with brick, fished out of the river, Swaddled in layers of linen, newspaper, and brown paper, a partially decomposed body of baby Helena Fry. White tape had been wound around her neck with a knot under the left ear. So they, when they researched to Mrs. Thomas, they found it was Amelia. And that she had a habit of abducting kids. So what they did is they had a woman pretend to want to sell a baby. She was greeted by Granny Smith. How you like them apples? She agreed to take the baby, but instead of getting the baby, she got a bunch of cops. It was Amelia Dyer. When they raided her residence, they were overcome with the stench of human remains, but no bodies were found. Several more babies were recovered from the river, each with white edging tape still wrapped around their necks. Dyer was later quoted as saying about the white tape, That was how you could tell if it was one of mine. So it looks like six more babies were found. Another one says... Two bodies were found in a carpet bag. So there were two to six babies, maybe more, that were found when they, dragged, when they drugged the river. She tried to kill herself twice, once with scissors, once with her own bootlace, but was unsuccessful. She was tried and tried to use the insanity defense, but she was found guilty within five minutes. She was 57. The way that she tried to claim insanity is she said that birds spoke to her, apparently, and she had depression and melancholy, but the prosecution and jury didn't agree, and she got hanged. So she was convicted of one and suspected of many more. The estimates they come up with is based on timelines and the year she was active. That's how they estimate how she could have killed between 200 and 400 kids. And there's an interesting theory about her, because the murders occurred during the same period. Some people believe that Amelia Dyer is Jack the Ripper and that the Ripper's victims were botched abortions committed by Dyer. There apparently isn't really much evidence to back that up. But it's still uh, kind of interesting. We've got two more to cover. Also from England, we have Amelia Sack and Annie Walters. From 1900 to 1902, Amelia Sack was a 29-year-old midwife and owner of the home. She helped women deliver their babies and eventually got involved in baby farmers, telling mothers she'd find homes for their children with wealthy couples in exchange for a fee. Supposedly what happened is Sack would take in the baby, give the baby to her employee Annie Walters, 
who was 54 years old, and apparently they called her feeble, which meant that she was not very bright. So she had a low IQ. So she gave the baby to this low IQ 54-year-old Annie Walters, and Annie Walters would murder it with chlorodyne, which is a morphine-based drug that causes asphyxia in babies. And then the baby's body would be disposed of in the Thames or by throwing it on a rubbish dump. So the Thames had um, some different babies thrown in it during this time period, which is just fucking horrifying. Their crimes were eventually uncovered when Walters' landlord, who was also a police officer, became suspicious when babies his tenant brought home simply disappeared without a reasonable explanation. For whatever reason, instead of just disposing of the baby, she brought one home. She actually told the police officer and his wife that she's looking after the little girl while her parents were on holiday, and the policeman's wife helped her change the baby's diaper. The policeman's wife noted that the little girl was actually a boy. So first, it's kind of weird that she has this baby, but okay. But she called the little girl when it's very obviously a boy, so that's another red flag. Unless they just figure the woman is lower IQ, so... But they probably didn't think she would harm the baby, I don't know. But the thing is, a few days later, Mrs. Walters told the couple that the child had died in its sleep, but she seemed genuinely upset, so they didn't think too much of it. Until, a few months later, the same thing happened. Is She brought a baby, and the baby died. She was arrested and charged with murder of the child. This was a three-month-old boy by the name of Galley. Further bodies were discovered from information Walters gave the police, and she implicated Amelia Sack. Oh, I just realized that there's another Amelia. There's Amelia Dyer and Amelia Sack. Don't know what's up with these Amelias. The police had enough evidence to charge them both with murder. Many items of baby's clothing were found by the police when they searched Sack's home, and it's possible she could have murdered as many as 20 children. It says that when she was arrested, Walters was holding the body of a dead baby, but she denied being responsible for the child's death. In one case, it sounded like the cops saw her with babies and then didn't see her with babies and then they got her arrested. But apparently, before that happened, they had a boy watching her to try to catch her for proof. The boy watches her. He sees Walters return with the baby. Then he was watching again. And as he was watching, there was a detective with him then. She came out about 9 o'clock in the morning carrying what appeared to be a baby. She frequently looked around to see if anyone was, was following. They caught up with her, and when they saw what was in her arms, it was a dead baby. So that's fucked. They were both tried, and the jury took 40 minutes to find them both guilty. They were both executed by hanging. Amelia Sack had to almost be carried to the scaffold, while Annie Walters stayed quite calm and is said to have called out, Goodbye, Sack! as she was hooded on the trapdoors. This was, this was to be the last double female hanging in Britain. They were also known as the Finchley Baby Farmers. Our last one. You'll see most of these have been females, although we have John with his wife Sarah, so there was one male so far. Here's another male, Hans Oftedal, from 1908 to 1909. 27 infants died while under the roof of Dr. Hans Oftedal on, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So now we have one in America. 1905, Minneapolis was known to have over 40 baby farms in operation, but city officials believed that the number had dropped to five by 1908. So Hans was one of these, one of these five baby farms, apparently. He took over in 1908 the operation of the Cody Hospital. And just a year later, he abandoned it with um, his wife and one of his nurses. He was not actually a licensed physician. I know you're going to be surprised to hear that. He advertised himself as a doctor and ran a hospital, so that's, that's great. He shut down the hospital by leaving and having all the utilities turned off. They left five babies with two teenagers that had no supplies or food. The poor department found out and got custody of the children. All of them survived, but three were not in good health due to, be, due to being fed only skim milk. They had run to Seattle. The Minneapolis police did not go after him. And it's believed that they weren't aware of the 27 deaths. Eventually, they did get wind of it, and the babies have been buried in unmarked graves. In 1917, the Children's Code was enacted by Minnesota legislature regulating adoption and the licensing of hospitals' boarding homes that took in children. 1920s, he returned to Minnesota. He was no longer a doctor, 
but he was listed in the city directory as a carpenter. While accounts of the deaths don't indicate Aftadal was suspected of murdering the children, they do seem to show that many of the babies died as a result of neglect and malnutrition. He was never charged for any of the crimes. So there wasn't really a whole much, very much on him. It was difficult to find very much information, but I did find uh, local newspapers that mention it. Not a whole lot on him. And I've noticed uh, in this last section that uh, Igor referred to baby farming as infant agriculture. Those by no means are all of the people that were known to be baby farmers in, in these different countries. But the difficulty is, since I like to cover serial killers, I was trying to find ones that had a higher number of, of victims. But as we saw in several cases is, is that they were convicted for one and suspected of several more. So there weren't really convictions for it. And there were quite a few where the people were known to have killed one or two babies. There were a lot more. If you look up baby farming, there are quite a few different names that will pop up. But I just chose to cover these specific ones. And one of the things that was specifically interesting about looking up this situation is that the, your gut reaction, which is natural, is disgust and horror that anyone would kill babies. And I'm still disgusted and horrified by the deaths of babies. But as we, as I read about the details of what was happening during that time period, the, with the social, in the social context with poverty and lack of assistance for women with children, lack of support of families, and just everything that was happening during the Victorian period, it doesn't excuse it but it helps to explain why it happened. So that was an, part of what I found the most intriguing is that I was a little surprised to feel some empathy. Again, I'm not saying that I'm happy with it or I'm not saying it's okay that that happened. But in this these cases, it doesn't seem like the people wanted to just kill babies because if they want to just kill babies, they could walk around killing babies. It was more about money. It was an easy market, and maybe there's a point where you're so hungry and you're so desperate that you can justify ending a baby's life. Because if you are in a terrible situation, if the whole country is in a terrible situation, you can justify to yourself, well, what is this baby going to grow up to be anyway? There's workhouses, but workhouses are terrible. Maybe I'm helping this baby by not letting it grow up, and I'm helping myself. You know, so I'm helping, and I'm helping the parents that couldn't afford to handle this baby. So you can maybe see why if you're desperate, you could justify that if you have a certain, well, and I, th I think that's why it's important to point out that several of these women, they lost their husbands. And that time period, it was the men who made most of the money. That was the stru social structure as men made the money and women, sometimes they did works in certain areas, but for the most part, women had to rely on men. So when you take that away, then their hands were definitely tied in some cases, not to the point of murder again, but I'm explaining that for some people in these situations, that's what it leads to. It's important to point out that there are some people that realized, okay, well, maybe there's more to this than just these people like to kill. These people are terrible and they hate babies. It is more about what are the circumstances causing this to happen? Do we really have a group of people that want to go around and just take babies and starve them and poison them? When you start actually looking at the overall picture and looking at the motivations and the, the circumstances, then you start to see, well, this is, has a bigger social implication. This isn't just two or three people that are batshit crazy or that have, you know, mental problems and want to hurt babies. This is a deeper social issue that needs to be addressed. Let's address what is causing all these infant, infant fatalities and... Because, again, infants weren't even just dying from baby farms. They were dying of health, different health issues. So that's another big issue. They had to face more than just that. So this is the interesting thing about this is it's not just truly what you normally see in serial killing cases where there's a, a compulsion to do it. It's more of a means to an end in these cases and just a really sad social situation overall. So that, that's another thing that was really interesting about this to me. Infant agriculture. I like that one, Igor. So this was uh, difficult. There were moments that it was pretty hard when I heard some of the details. Thankfully, in this specific book and in the things that I was reading, there was nothing terribly graphic. So, I mean, by any means, it's not fun to hear about poisoning or starving babies. But in the grand scheme of serial killer things, especially when you've dealt with, like, Richard Chase, 
And we all know what Richard Chase did to the baby. And if you don't know, listen to my episode on vampires that I did at Halloween. So it could have been a lot worse, but it was not fun. I do have, um, on a happy note, it is amazing to me, but in about a month, Igor and I will be in Texas for CrimeCon. I had not been aware of CrimeCon until Igor told me of his existence, because I'm pretty new to the true crime thing over the past couple years. So she got us tickets. We were supposed to go last summer, but then COVID came and had fun with everyone's plans. So it got postponed until it was going to be in Florida, which was pretty fucking exciting. But then it got postponed, so now it's in Texas, which I'm still excited about. We'll be going to Texas to CrimeCon and seeing um, True Crime Garage, I believe, is going to be there, which is pretty exciting because I re- we really, really love their podcast. There's going to be a bunch of other other true crime podcasts there and some people who know stuff about crime. And I will actually look up more information about it to tell you because it's pretty exciting. They had kind of um, been quiet about it for a while because they had to postpone it. I'm sure they had to recombobulate and figure out who could still come and all that. So they just now started releasing more information about who would be there. So that is something exciting to look forward to. I don't know that we will record anything there, but we will definitely talk about it when we come back. And we'll come out with an episode just about CrimeCon and our adventures and experiences with it. So that's something to keep an eye out for on the media pages. Well, that's enough of infant agriculture, baby farming, and all that stuff. We won't talk about... We might talk about it again at some point, but it won't be for a while. So thank you, as always, for joining. I appreciate your support. Please tell others of the glory and wonder of Murder Lab. And as always, thank you for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. Everybody was dumping their babies.